what were you saying about the, the red pill? Your, your experiences with uh well i you know this this the phenomenon of having your worldview challenged and and by worldview i, I shouldn't say that word your your core assumptions perhaps having those core assumptions challenged or changed and then having the freedom or the ability to work out the implications of that despite what it means for your old worldview or, or, or assumptions. Well, you know, yeah. Once you have stayed within a certain worldview, it's my theory is, uh, and I believe research has been done about this. I've done a little bit of reading about it, but it's usually when you link a worldview to your identity, your identity is your worldview. I am a libertarian. I am, uh, this religious sect. And once you make something a part of your identity, it's just that hard to change. And so when, when it runs into any kind of obstacle, you're just like, well, that obstacle must not be there. Or, uh, it's not a serious challenge because you just can't examine it. You, you, you're incapable of self-reflection on your own identity. That's just not possible. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I do crossword puzzles. That's, that's my main, that's my, my main thing. I do crossword Mm -hmm. puzzles as much as I can. It's good for the vocabulary, good for uh, mental stimulation. But there's that I phenomenon. I just use Twitter. <laughs> there's that phenomenon where you look at certain clues and you have no idea what it is, and then you come back a day later with fresh eyes and you say, "Oh, of course! <laughs> like I didn't know that." But it takes that critical distance, right? It takes getting your head out of that milieu, walking away, and coming back. And so for me, that's kind of been my experience, having taught at a university, at uh, the old university, we'll call it. Um, for 10 years and right out of my most formative year, I I started teaching there when I was, um, boy, 27 years old. Yeah. It was like right out of grad school for you. (laughs) It it? was right out of grad school. I finished grad school my first, uh, first year there. And, um, you know, so I didn't have time to breathe. I didn't have time to look around and, you know, and this was in 2000 and, nine 2008 2009 and so Mm. you know uh the great recession had everyone scared i had a lot of debt from grad school and this nice college said we'll we'll hire you and we'll let you teach and that's what i like to do and i you're very good at it by the way oh well thank you (laughs) i made uh i made friends there and you know it was my home for a decade but when i left to kind of explore some other opportunities, everything, the whole structure that I had kind of held on to as my identity was unnecessary in a way. Um, it was, there was nothing, let's say, let's say it this way, because I've said it to you, I think before, mm-hmm. when your health insurance depends on you thinking a certain way and looking a certain way and believing a certain way, it's a lot easier to put your head down and not think about some of the conflicts. I, and, I remember yeah. you saying that in our last conversation, and I want to use that right now <laughs> to go ahead and do the introduction. Yeah. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Hold No Heroes. It's been a little while since we've done an episode, but um, I am uh, back at the recording table, and we have a special guest today, my old professor, Professor Xavier. Hi, Professor. Hey. Hello, hello. <laughs> it's, I know it's Professor X, and that's not we're using. We use fun names here, but uh, it's, yeah, uh, it's great, uh, great to be here, Richard. Great to be uh, uh, with you. And- um, uh, professor X was a uh, professor of mine uh, back at uh, the school Manfred and I uh, went to. Um, he also uh, taught me a great many things. He uh, taught me uh, intro to uh, philosophy, or it was uh, critical thinking. It was oh, yeah, um, that's right. They yes. needed someone to fill that class, and they're like, "Can you do this?" I was like, "Sure, why not?" I I was actually just talking about you the other day. Uh, I think yesterday, even where I was talking about how um, you know, there's uh, you know, when you're in school, there's a lot of work, and sometimes you just have to prioritize. Like this ain't getting done today. And I remember a pop quiz you did where I'm just like, "I'm sorry, dude, I clearly <laughs> didn't do that." It was a five question quiz on um, Sherlock Holmes. Oh um, yeah, that would have been the um, oh what of course the uh, silver blaze is what I yes used, uh, the and I remember <laughs> I remember handing you my like 
three out of five like quiz <laughs> or and the look you gave me and I, it, the look we exchanged was one of just like you didn't read this did you like no i didn't i'm sorry but <laughs> or i'm just like sorry sorry dude <laughs> I, I had a lot of greek homework to do and uh, i didn't get to it but um I, one know, I learned of my... over the years i learned over the years that uh to sort of take into account my own laziness when I assign things and not be upset <laughs> when people turn out to be about as lazy as me. And it was such everything. a short story too. I had like, like in a five point quiz, I'm just like, you know, and, and they were obvious questions too. Like if, yeah. even if I had skimmed it, I would have gotten it, but I, I just on the face of it, I'm like, there's no hiding from this. I absolutely <laughs> didn't read this and I can't even lie about it. Um, but you taught me. Um, so it was critical thinking. Um, uh, but your specialty was, uh, history, uh, in which I, um, probably, uh, avoid naming the courses, but, uh, we went through a whole bunch of different topics and everything that, uh, Mm -hmm. I, to this day still reference and use. And not only that, but, uh, professor, uh, for the audience, you wrote my, uh, letter of recommendation to the university of Edinburgh. Okay. All right. We're saying the official title of the university. Gotcha. Um, that one, that one I'll say uh, for myself yeah. because I was only there for a year and uh, could put tracking down any evidence that I was ever <laughs> there or that anyone ever knew me. I think I pissed off a few of the professors there, but I'm pretty sure no more than any other American. So yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that, was, that was a learning experience for me that uh, I think being abroad because I came back into the, the bubble of the old college so quickly, yeah. some of the lessons that I kind of picked up as a foreigner uh, mm-hmm. took a while. And, uh, you know, one example is when I was at uh, the university I was at um, that was near to Edinburgh, we'll say, mm-hmm. it, uh, Noam Chomsky came and spoke. Oh, And I remember thinking like, oh, that's a bad person. <laughs> I I had those same like impulses. I'm just like, all right, just tell me who's good, who's bad, and I'll read. Uh, I'll read it. Like you know, yeah. because I was a busy student. I'm just like, look, I understand that I shouldn't give my facilities over to other people to moderate and everything yeah. like that. I understood that, but as somebody who's just like, look, I've got a class in, of Hebrew at seven in the morning. I got a class at Greek right after that. I am swamped. Just tell me who you hate and who you. <laughs> Like, exactly. and I'll be sure to mention them in my paper. So you give me a good grade. Like that was kind of it. Well, and Richard, e- even at the time, yeah. even in school, uh, you know, I hung out with you and a bunch of other professors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of, uh, we talked a lot of philosophy and kind mm-hmm. of current events for the most part. And I, at the time, I considered myself a libertarian because I was just like, well, they're libertarian. And I pretty much get the anti-authoritarian kind of aspect of it. Like, leave me yeah. alone. I got mine. So I was just like, for the longest time, I'm just like, yeah, I guess I'm a libertarian. Ron Paul's okay. Maybe. I didn't put a lot of research into it. Yeah. Oh, we could, Richard, don't, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Oh, Paul. Oh, yeah. Well, also, well, uh, one other thing I should introduce to our our listeners is that uh, both of us were teacher's assistants for the same professor, just a different year. When you went to our alma mater, the old college, college, I was um, a student there. I went away. I came back. You were there. I taught you. You went away. mm And then um, I tried to come back to teach and that was another recession and they weren't hiring. Uh, So uh, that is why I now work in tech. I wanted to be a professor. (laughs) It was a, um, I'll say it was, how do you do this? I have warm and fond feelings for those years. Mm -hmm. I am a very different person, uh, especially from when I was a student. Uh, still from when I was a professor. Um, but I, I don't, I don't want to say as I'm, as we're talking about the old alma mater, I want to make sure I, I convey it was a really good thing for me and Same. the relationships made. And, uh, you know, I, um, but I've changed, <laughs> my, you, you yeah. have certain things change. And, and just for the, the listener here, uh, basically my story is I'm at the old college the old college, in order to be a full-time professor, you have to ascribe to a certain confession of faith, a Lutheran confession of faith, we'll say. And if you don't, you can't work there. 
Well, I and think so, they keep you as an adjunct, don't they? Yeah, you can't exactly. Full time professor. You can't be full time, exactly. And the pay is is terrible. And I, like I said, it was the the Great Recession, and I just started teaching what my career was. And so it's not that I I didn't believe those things. I just didn't give them too much thought. Mm-hmm. And so what happened pretty soon is, well, I should say a decade later is I was offered a job with something kind of like a think tank, but I kind of am a independent scholar, I suppose, in my own way. When I left, there were things that I could start examining, things that had been stuck in my craw since graduate school. And this is what I wanted me, to talk to you about. Yeah, this is, it would this have is... done me no favors. It would have done me yeah. no favors. Um, and so once I came out, from that institution was able to kind of think through things. You know, I, I, for the first time critically kind of started examining my, you know, sort of core beliefs. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I completely abandoned them, right? It's not like I, I deconstructed everything and became the opposite of once I, of what I once was. I, I think I just became a slightly more nuanced um, version of that and a, a sort of a different interpretation of some of the same things that, that I held dear. I think some of the things are just fleshed out a lot more. You know, yeah. uh, one of my biggest criticisms of, um, I guess, conservative thinking uh, in general, but also of my own thinking back in those days was uh, you just don't think through the ramifications of your thoughts. So you're just like, all right, hard line here. And you just don't really think you're not encouraged to think of what those ramifications are. You think this thing because it is right, because you have mm-hmm. been told to. Um, either because your health insurance rests on it or uh, your success academically rests on it. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's just like, okay, um, in order to speak a little more concretely, let's just say like abortion. Abortion was just something that just categorically unacceptable um, in, in those contexts. Like you just like, it's not a, con- it's not a conversation to have. Yeah. But one of the things I criticize conservative people for is just like, okay, if your goal is to have fewer abortions, do you know how you achieve that? Like with contraception or with family planning or with um, uh, sex education or the quick and dirty way to go ahead and ramp up um, abortion and abortion accidents and deaths is uh, banning it and uh, abstinence only education. And just for an example, I don't remember abortion being a big issue there because everybody supposedly yeah, ascribed to the same because stuff. you cannot say otherwise absolutely you cannot suggest a, a, a way of thinking that goes against the party line and you know the party line on abortion and conservative christians only goes back a couple decades oh yeah in the the 1970s the southern baptist convention right the most conservative denomination <laughs> came out with a position on abortion this is about 1974 that would look downright progressive today. Oh, really? And essentially they were saying, well, we're not Baptist, we're not Catholics, so we're not against birth control. <laughs> and there are various forms of birth control. And uh, abortion, for certain reasons, it was you know the standards, health of the mother, mm-hmm. uh, but it was also the sort of, uh, what they used a word like um, mental and social well-being of the mother. Mm-hmm. Right. And, I mean, could you imagine someone saying that today in a conservative circle? Like, I mean, I hear that getting brought up as an excuse for against uh, against abortion, which is just like, oh, um, yeah, the doctors are clearly on the side of pro-abortion, but there are social and like mental ramifications for it, and that's why you should. It'll mess you. Like, you'll go crazy. It's like the old like uh, after-school specials for drugs, where it's just like, <laughs> oh, if you have. Oh, you have one, you have one abortion, you'll go insane or you'll die or both. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, when you look at, um, you know, for your, your listeners, I'm an, an unaffiliated man politically. Um, but ironically, when abortions go down, it's when a Democrat's in office. Mm-hmm. And, and then to just to, to parallel that, the national debt goes down when a Democrat's in office. It's been true since the seventies. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just one of these like gang type things. Like, well, no, this is my gang, so I can't identity. Yeah, it's your, it's team. your identity. Yeah, and and if I believe you're right about these three things, then I'm you must be right about these seven other things. Right? Yeah. Yep. And what you were saying earlier, tell me what to think. 
because yeah. you think, well, it'll be consistent enough. It'll be, you know, consistency being the word, right? I don't have time mm-hmm. to think about this. How does someone in my circles deal with that? Cool. I'm there. Well, um, I, I think back to uh, a, a former colleague of yours and a former professor of mine uh, of anthropology uh, for the name. Um, but uh, one, of, one of his key theses when he would teach would say that systems of thought are generally um, coherent in that they rely on one another. There's usually um, – and it's kind of just a lived in principle that you kind of just assume by instinct where you're just, all right, well, Christians believe these things. And like you said, if you're they're right about these three things, then let's go ahead and take for granted the other stuff because I don't have all day to research everything. Yeah. Um, and there are elements of that where there is a consistency, but it's not consistency born out of logic or facts, but it is a consistency born out of um, let's say for uh, let's keep using the anal- uh, the the example abortion. It's about controlling people. It is uh, about uh, specifically controlling the autonomy of women. That is the end goal. However, we get there is kind of just fluff. We'll yeah. get there eventually. We're making it up as we go. That's the consistency part. But you know the, these worldviews do tend to you know one ideology or one facet of that worldview. It's kind of contingent on the others. They fit together very neatly and they rely on one another because they have core values. You know, it's, it's funny, Richard, I'm, I'm assuming that when we talk about our, um, our academic lineage at the old college, <laughs> that we took some classes that were probably very, very similar to each other, just about a decade or so apart. And one of the, the, professors that was kind of doing a philosophy of religion type thing made a point that there are two kinds, essentially two kinds of systems. One is based on coherency and one is based on correspondence. And the coherency argument is look at what a nice system we've made. Hmm. Now, th- this professor was a Lutheran and would use the uh, coherency argument as a dig on Calvinists. Now, if, <laughs> if, the, if the deep stuff of Protestant Reformation sects isn't something you listen or know, just know. This was the idea that the bad group uses coherence. The good group uses correspondence. Correspondence isn't that you have a beautiful system, but that the facts you hold, the truths you hold, correspond to reality. Ah. Oh. I so see. are you going to go coherent? So one is true. One is because it feels good. Facts <laughs> over feelings. The Ben Shapiro argument. <laughs> the Ben Shapiro. <laughs> Don't get me. I'll get angry. Um, <laughs> the the un the, the just unchecked love of Ben Shapiro among people who should know better. Um, oh. I feel like I need to pin my my pinned tweet. I, I don't have any pinned tweets. I've never done that. But um, Cody Johnston. Even more oh, news. Yeah. Why no one should take Ben Shapiro seriously? That's just like the mic drop. You want to know what I think about Ben Shapiro? Just watch that. <laughs> An hour-long video just debunking everything he's ever done and said. And it's like you're a liar. You're a fraud. You talk quickly and you just put people down. Your uh, arguments and, are facile and go away. You're just a de- failed comedy writer. That's and, it. And dear listener, please understand that if uh, if you go to the, the podcast, I mean obviously you want this to be your number one podcast. Maybe number two should be Behind the Bastards. Oh, yeah. And uh, with Robert Evans, and when he does a reading with uh, Katie and, and Cody from Even More News, when they they read uh, Shapiro's novel, it is. I, I mean, I've had to like sit on the ground because I'm laughing so hard because it really I have that queued that. up because <laughs> okay. uh, uh, I, I have it on my phone um, uh, ready to listen to off of your recommendation the other day. Okay. Just like Please you heard the find the bastard two parts and that first part. It's 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 one of the funniest things there is, and it's uh, it's not it's a little mean spirited. So listener, beware. But He's a before, very mean and evil person. He's definitely <laughs> earned it. The uh, but going back to this idea of correspondence or coherence, mm-hmm. is your system one that is true because all of the facts work together, or is it true because the facts that you have, well, they might not work great together. 
they all seem to correspond to reality. For me, getting this way of thinking about the world blew everything up. And then, you know, in the past couple of years, being able to say, yeah, the system isn't very coherent. I think, <laughs> as I tell my system and my, my students, isms are always false, but they're helpful for kind of thinking through, you know, ideas. But yeah. as soon as you say the system is coherent and therefore true, you're getting into the world of kind of Cartesian make-believe, right? Where you can think of anything. You could make up anything. And so long as A and B square roots equal C, you must be right. <laughs> uh, rather than saying, well, I, I believe these things because they correspond to reality. And, and for me, that's been, you know, it's ironic that I learned that from someone with whom I disagree with so much on everything. Um, but, it, but it was a really helpful package for figuring out, okay, how does, how do, how do I think through what's going on, whether that's religion or politics? And really that's been, you know, my, my academic world and my personal world is religion and politics. Those are the mm -hmm. things that I, I teach, I write about, I talk about. And so, um, yeah, correspondence, um, what facts seem to be true, even if it fucks with your system. <laughs> that's that's yeah. sometimes what happens. I find it fascinating that he taught you, he gave, he taught you this thing that was meant to be a reinforcement of his own beliefs that mm -hmm. you at the time shared mm -hmm. at least uh, to a degree. Mm -hmm. And now it's just like, yeah, I'm going to use that uh, to undermine everything you intended that to mean, because um, I don't know if you know quite how coherent your system or how uh, true your system is or how you, you take a lot of it for granted. <laughs> and uh and, and when the answers are convenient, like don't worry, give the rich people more money. Don't oh, yeah. worry, the environment is fine. Don't worry. <laughs> These things that are like, oh, those minorities are making too much of a big deal. Right? Those oh, are yeah. all really convenient ways to yeah, as, kind of um, extricate yourself. Middle class white people in America. Yeah, absolutely. Hearing that kind of stuff here is just like, yeah, um, the system that um, saw you and your family succeed and we'll see you and – maybe your next generation succeed um, to smaller and smaller degrees yeah. um, uh, is fine. Well, why would you question it? Uh, and you know, th this is, this is a conversation I have constantly with people these days where it's just like, man, things seem to be getting worse. I'm like, yes, <laughs> that is true. But well, yeah, more people are becoming aware of that. And so mm -hmm. something's got to give. I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I didn't intend to bring you on here to talk revolution. Um, but uh, listen, my, uh, <laughs> I uh, I listened to the the interview you did with uh, Manfred de Vox, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it it made me very happy to hear some of these things. Uh, I I know Manfred, uh, you know, from from back in the day. So mm -hmm. I I come from the tradition of Martin Luther, right? Um, I'm a Protestant. I uh, attend a Lutheran church, although it's not the same kind of Lutheran church I used to attend. Um, they do have their multiple flavors. <laughs> Martin Luther, like I'm talking 1521 Martin Luther is fucking punk rock. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't care what anyone says. The that 95 guy, theses. That guy's got a, 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 a sledgehammer and he's saying, bring it on mofos. However, in 1525, just years later, when the peasants get out of hand, right? When the Anabaptists start taking that freedom in other directions, mm. Luther gives the authority of running this movement to the state. And in many ways, it's the end of a peasants revolt, vigorous, it? it's the end of the peasants revolt, but it's the mm. end for me of the reformation in a lot of ways. Really? I, I can give, uh, I can't give too many shits about kind of later 16th century stuff. <laughs> where everyone's just trying to figure out, well, what would have Luther said? Well, how do we make this into to a cohesive uh, blend of, of this and that? I mean, it, for me, it becomes so boring. And so my initial study before I moved into U.S. history was actually on the next generation of reformers who wanted to kind of invite that revolutionary spirit back into theology and were shut down by the system mm -hmm. because the the system and the church, Protestant, Lutheran, it, it's it's the opposite of freeing in practice. Yeah. It, yeah. Is, it is the most 
and I'd say about just about any denomination, Protestant denomination, they become super heavy, top down. You must believe here are the thing. I mean, it. it Their own stifles. little fiefdoms. Yeah, and Their it own stifles authorities. a real revolution that says, "Shit, man, let's just break stuff and try and put it back together." Together, you know, let's try and try and make something. But as soon as it becomes codified by the estate, by the elite, with financial uh, interests, it's uh, it's it's pretty much dead. So. Uh, you know, I'm all for revolutions. Uh, I just think oftentimes the kind of revolutions we talk about, um, we don't quite understand. Well, I suppose yeah. we're talking about uh, the difference between reformation and revolution. The, way, you know, yeah. let's try and fix the system from the inside, Luther, uh, and the like, let's start from scratch, uh, revolution mm-hmm. uh, kind of aspect of like, well, we're our own authority now, which gets into its own problems and foibles. Yeah, because every system has problems. <laughs> yeah. The idea is what's your what are the what are the things you won't budge on? Or what are the things that you are fairly convinced are true? Thus you need to take them into account as you're thinking through building up your system. Mm-hmm. For me, there is kind of one uh, observable theological truth. Mm-hmm. And that is what the theologians call original sin. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, uh, stuff is fucked up. Stuff isn't how it's supposed to be. Uh, however you want to imagine it, it's saying things are broken. People are broken. Systems are broken. And our job is to love our neighbor and not necessarily put everything back together again. To do the best hope, we can. To hope in the redemption of all things, which will take place. But in the meantime, try and make life a little better for your neighbor. That's mm-hmm. very much, I think, you know, Jesus, <laughs> very much Luther. The, the idea that y- are you willing to help people in a world where things are not right? I- I'll take that as my foundation. And once you start from that foundation, it's so liberating. It's so freeing to be able to say, well, I, I don't have any dreams of perfectibility on earth. Mm-hmm. I, um, I was part of one of these uh, chain emails, you know, the, just the older generations, boomers love the chain emails. <laughs> and this chain email came to me and it was about the, um, the 1619 project, you know, the New York times mm. project on slavery. And, um, that's a whole different conversation. It's, I think it's a very interesting work. It's, um, it's unorthodox historically in some ways, but I don't think that's necessarily bad. Um, nevertheless, this chain email went around that was just excoriating that and then went into excoriating Howard Zinn and then excoriating American, uh, American history teachers who seem to want to, quote, tear down America who want to say, maybe the founding fathers weren't that great. (laughs) Because of my position on original sin, uh, everything's fucked up, right? I don't, I mean, this is your, your hold no heroes, right? I mean, yep. Yep. Thank you for the plug. Thank you for the tag. There's nobody who has it right. And so wouldn't it surprise, it, it would surprise me if a bunch of men, and usually it's men, got a whole bunch of power and used it for general benevolence, for individual liberties and freedoms. It's just well, not the case. Yeah, there's there's a topic to try and find out where that happened. Benevolent dictatorship has it happened? <laughs> I mean, it really. And and so, you know, I think one of the first things that kind of stuck with me was I was uh, somehow somewhere, and the, the Pledge of Allegiance was being said. Now, I don't want to upset anybody. Maybe maybe y'all love the Pledge of Allegiance. That's fine. You're free to love it. But for me it seems like a really fucking weird thing. Mm-hmm. We're all going to stand up and put our hands on our hearts and pledge allegiance. Like that, that <laughs> I, I don't mean to get all Anabaptist here, but I, I'm, I'm a Christian right? and I, I believe in, in Jesus Christ, the son, only son of uh, God, the father. This is what I believe. And so I'm not going to pledge allegiance to a state, to a denomination, to a system, 
because my theology already tells me that on this side of the eschaton, all states and systems are likely to get fucked. Mm -hmm. And so I I do not pledge allegiance. I do not stand for – and I I guess it's been surprising how shocking that is to some people. And it would have been shocking to me, I'm sure, if I said that 10 years ago or heard it myself. But there's just this liberation, and the liberation is perfectly in line with my theological beliefs about the world. So once you're able to just tear everything down and say, wait a second, I don't owe anybody allegiance. I don't owe Luther allegiance. I don't owe the church allegiance. I don't owe the state allegiance. Um, let's work through these things. And for me, that was kind of the, the massive, okay, time to get reading. And so mm-hmm. I've, I've spent the past couple of years just reading, uh, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm, you know, reading as much as a book a day. And uh, it, it, I've, I taught myself speed reading back in grad school just to make things this, easier. This does make your classes a lot, make a lot more sense now that I know okay. that you can put a book away in a day. It's just like, yeah. all right, here's a uh, Barzin. I want you to uh, read it by the semester. And it's like, all right, uh, sure, uh, professor, we will give it a whirl. <laughs> Never, never take professors in their first couple of years because they're always far too, uh, you know, <laughs> like, you can do all of these things. I guess. Maybe you can't. But um, hey, you pushed us. You know, the, 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 that was something that uh, I very much did appreciate and I took a lot out of it. Uh, the, the, the New Horizons you showed. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. And, that, and that's what does it, right? It's just more books, more books, different people. Mm-hmm. The Jacques Barzin book you're talking about is uh, From Dawn to Decadence, his overview of 1500 to 2000 uh, in the Western world. And I, I still think it's a really good book. He's he's oh, yeah. far he's very institutionalist, right? He believes in the sort of purity of institutions, and that kind of comes through in, in his mm-hmm. work. It's a little aristocratic, um, but nonetheless um, – well, that's a that big was, chunk of history, anyways. Like, oh yeah, yeah. A lot of field is, uh, you know, uh, uh, the the history of great men, the uh, the 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 history of institutions of institutions, the, great men, great ideas. Yeah, uh, that's kind that's of how I was initially trained. Yeah, but then in grad school, that all got thrown away. So, <laughs> I, uh, I I kind of had to come back to my roots in that sense. <laughs> I can't imagine that uh, the the course you must have taken in grad school that uh, kind of shook those scales from your eyes a bit because that that is you just do it by default because there's I remember I remember uh, the first history class I took with you mm-hmm. and one of the things I, I remember you uh, doing the introduction of the class and you were saying like look all right I want to try and teach history in a way that maybe other people haven't. And we're going to focus a little less on memorizing names and dates. And so everybody who maybe didn't care that much about school was just like, oh, thank God. Okay, cool. (laughs) Easy class. But you were very much like, I want you to think big picture. What happened? What it inspired? What caused, you know, what caused this? And what did this cause uh, elsewhere? You know, just history less as a timeline is more as a, a web of cause and effect yeah. and about the uh, influences that different people have on each other. And um, it's, it's a shame that the history, which should be uh, a field that is so rife with um, humanity, mm-hmm. just like seeing the cause and effects that humans have on each other, uh, either for good or for ill can sometimes be so uh, you know, rung of its humanity. It's just like, all right, well, um, here's a genocide that happened in Myanmar. Uh, the number is this many. It's like, why did that genocide happen? Uh, we don't know. And we don't know who carried it out. And it's not important. Just memorize these facts. You'll pass the quiz and you're good to go. But that you, you, you were adamant to try and break through that and to try and say that we are, uh, was was it a title of one of the books or something? I remember it was something you said in classes. Uh, the the quote, uh, "Standing on the shoulders of giants." Oh, yeah. The idea yeah, of standard. we are. Who's that? Oh yeah, the standard historiographical historical goal, right? To find yeah. the best and to work from the work they've already done. You do it in every other field. Might as well do history as well. Yeah, you know we 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 are uh, you know we are descendants of those that have come before us, and we can we have the advantage of hindsight. We can pick and choose what we want to inspire us or to move us forward and what we want to improve upon. And it's, and, you know, 
yeah. you tie all that. And it's, it's funny how there are just these threads that didn't quite come together for me back in the day. I think largely because I couldn't think certain things. And so I didn't venture to look into certain things, right? Because it would do me no good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the connection of sort of going through the, the bin of history and seeing who said what and how has it worked out. And how, we should be able to look at everybody. We should be able to try and find where there are people making changes that aren't just our tribe, our brand. And like everything else, it just becomes so tribal yeah. that um, the one thing I do remember, and, and I don't know if you would have been in this class, but um, I, when I taught my general Western Civ class, I always had the kids, um, almost always had the kids read Marx. No, and not when I was there. Not when you were there. I'm sorry. Um, you know, just the it's okay. I've, I'm on Twitter now. So, okay. <laughs> the, um, I get a lot of it. <laughs> But I, I remember that being very exciting for me as a young man reading Marx as a Lutheran, uh, because here's another dude who's saying shit's broken, right? Here's mm-hmm. another dude. I, I've always compared him. I've, I've compared him to, to students. Karl Marx at his best is just doing what Charles Dickens was doing at the same time in using literature. Mm-hmm. He was he was saying the system is broken. Mm-hmm. That people are suffering, and we need to, we need to come up with some ideas to change this because the system is fundamentally broken. That's what Luther was doing. Um, Marx has that same kind of spirit when you read the Manifesto, um, not Das Kapital, which is much longer and, and more indicative of, of you know Marx and Engels' thought. But Marx himself in that Manifesto is just spitting fire, like like Luther in one of his early treatises. Well, and, can you think uh, of anything more Christian? Uh, than um, the the meek shall inherit the earth. You oh, know, yeah. uh, <laughs> how, how how Marxist does that get? The idea of the, the worker, the the bourgeoisie, the like the the idea of things are designed top down to push the masses, and uh, a just society is one that gets flipped. You know, yeah. the, the uh, I, I, well, you know, I, I I'd say that at last year's uh, well during the. Uh, this campaign that has uh, gone so, so bad in so many ways, this year of campaigning for the United States president, mm. the most Christian thing I've heard from a politician in, a, in forever is when Bernie Sanders was at his rally and he said, look around and say, are you willing to fight for someone you don't know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I thought, oh yeah, love your neighbor. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and not only, and I mean, and that is the social ethic of Protestants, of Lutherans. It's, listen, I don't have to do shit in order to be saved. That's mm-hmm. done, right? Taken care of. So the only thing I'm here on earth to do is through my vocation to make the world a little bit better for other people while I'm here. Mm-hmm. And the systems that do that, I'm going to be less suspicious of. The systems that say, uh, don't look, we're doing fine. The answer is give the top more money. Um, stop being so radical. What are you going to give everything for free? You know, that kind of, of conversation. <laughs> the idea that my, my only, the Christian ethic is loving your neighbor, is not esteeming yourself higher than others. Um, boy, I, I, it's hard to reconcile with uh, libertarian philosophy, right? <laughs> which while it purports to be super radical, and I think that's why so many of us went that direction, Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, it, it's in, it's inherently selfish, right? And and that's something that the Murray Rothbards or the the you know I'll list the names of the, the Chicago school. Um, oh boy, they would all say, yeah, of course, Friedman, right? Yeah, the whole thing works when we are. Um, well, Voltaire said when we're hedonists, right? Mm-hmm. Voltaire talked about capitalism. Greed Voltaire is talked- good. And he's really good, Gordon Gecko, right? Yeah. And wouldn't you know that a system that says, no, 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 it's okay to play to your most base instincts. And not only is it okay, but it's actually the best thing you can do. <laughs> Holy shit. I mean, I understand the uh, uh, why that's exciting, but uh, that's not right. Um, <laughs> well, not I've, I've had this – 
I've had this conversation with a, a friend of mine uh, who doesn't like to engage in politics. You know, she sees it as the beehive that it is. It's like, I don't feel like fighting with people about arcane bullshit. Like, I get that. Okay. She would describe herself as a libertarian. And I had this conversation with her where she said, uh, yeah, I would consider myself a libertarian. I, you know, I want people to be better off. Absolutely. And I want the government to do something about that, but I also want them to stop meddling in my shit. I'm like, Okay, it sounds like you're against um, organization or hierarchy. Like you sound more like an anarchist. The idea of a libertarian, uh, in my view, libertarians are, okay, taking everything as equal, leave me alone and everything will be fine. That's why um, I've had this conversation with my buddy Ken who's been on a few episodes. He's like, yeah, every libertarian I know is uh, pretty well off. They're just like, yeah, I'm fine. I don't, you know, I don't need the government to help me out. I'm fine. It's like, yeah, the government isn't oppressing you. The government isn't redlining you or suppressing your vote or uh, deporting you or bombing you. So you're fine. Yeah. So libertarianism is all right. St- all things being equal, we're good, right? <laughs> but yeah. all things aren't equal. It it, it ignores the sum total of human history in which inequality has been baked into every system that we are aware of. Uh, You know, uh, the idea that I benefit from my uh, modest apartment in Southern California with, uh, without like a history of the people before me, the middle-class job my father had, the suburban house he was able to afford because no one was redlining him, you know, Mm -hmm. the, Injustices, much like uh, advantages, compound off each other and through the generations. And so libertarianism, in my view, the best description of it is, all right, uh, I'm fine. You can leave me alone. Whereas, you know, anything else after that is, well, you know, I don't want to upset the apple cart. Well, yeah, yeah, you're okay. Lots of people aren't. And that's, you know, and that's where we said, you know, I said it comes down to even my Christian conviction of original sin, my Christian conviction that things are not as they ought to be now. (laughs) Um, That's what my faith tells me. And guess what? It corresponds to reality. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there's some middle-aged or middle-class rather, uh, middle-class white anxiety that has kind of, you know, really made itself heard and felt in, in America. But the idea of a real reckoning of what's wrong and how we're going to fix it uh, just can't be done with kind of a libertarian philosophy, which is, you're right. It's, um, it's convenient for a certain class of people. Uh, it's like, um, you know, I think Bernie used to say, or Bernie does still say that it's, um, rest in peace. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? It's, it's, uh, socialism for the top and rugged yeah. individualism for everybody else. <laughs> yeah. It's like with these bailouts and with, well, because it's built into their system, right? Well, if the airlines fail, the whole country will fall apart. <laughs> so yeah. It's not, it's not like those down. are a necessary uh, good that we just need and we can go ahead and fund and use without people profiting off them. And maybe they would even improve if mm-hmm. we all use them as a common good. The, the, the thing I have to, um, you know, the, the middle class or even the lower class libertarians are um, what Marx would call the uh, – and this is me um, piecemealing what I've read of Marx. So um, you're the historian. I haven't read a history book in a long time. Um, but uh, the – what was it? The false uh, class con- – the false consciousness, the idea that like I'm okay – when relatively, like relatively, it's uh, what um, MLK would say. So, you know, as long as I, the white person, the poorest white person in this country can say, at least I'm not black. Yeah. At least they have that going for them. And if racism were to be abolished tomorrow, then that means they'd still just be poor, just yeah. like them. You know, it's, it's, it's the one-upsmanship. It's the team membership. It's the like, well, I've got, I'm doing okay relatively. And it's always that that's a very American phenomenon where, man, our standards are just dog shit. Uh, you know, um, we, we get fucking nothing. We get taxed out the ass. We get almost nothing for it relative to every other first world country. But we're just like, yeah, freedom. What does freedom mean? Like you can't, you can't 
uh, drink in an open air market. You can't like uh, um, go to school without getting shot at. You can't afford a house or get a job that you're not going to get sick and die at. So what kind of freedom are we talking about as Americans? We're a very cowed well, and yeah, submissive and, and people. This, you know, this is the, the, the rhetoric of freedom, right? Mm-hmm. The rhetoric of freedom, which we can get so excited about thinking about, right? But while we're talking about this grand idea, this rhetoric, we're actually as you mentioned, we're actually not free. I was uh, looking up a list of the, the World Freedom Index. I was doing oh, that yeah. the other day. And uh, America is number 17 in terms of freest countries on earth. So We're number 17. Uh, we're number Woo. 17. Uh, Doesn't roll it, off know, the tongue quite that well. It, it, this idea of this, this rhetoric. And you know, one of the, uh, the things I, I really tend to hit, especially now that I'm doing much more American history, is I, I always kind of start my class near the beginning of the lecture, the semester rather, with the story of Bacon's Rebellion. And the idea of Bacon's Rebellion, essentially this guy Nathaniel Bacon is a, a rabble-rouser, and he gets together all the working-class folk uh, in, in uh, South Carolina, and they march on the governor's mansion, they burn it down. I mean, they're, they're rebels, and not necessarily the best kind. Mm-hmm. But the, the what happens is the the governor of South Carolina and the ruling class sees what can happen when all of the workers come together. Right? This is in the 1640s. And they have to come up with a way to divide the lower classes and pit them mm-hmm. against each other. And so before Bacon's Rebellion in America, the classification of people as black or white doesn't exist. I mean, sure, it might exist in people's minds, but you either tend to live in a place where you're all the same color, or you live in a place that's very metropolitan, and seeing people that are different colors is just part and parcel of your life. Mm-hmm. But but in the aftermath of Bacon's Rebellion, when the indentured servants who were white were given their freedom, which mm-hmm. really wasn't freedom, as opposed to now the, the black indentured servants who would be slaves. Now, it's a complicated story, but the idea being that hierarchy. This, yeah, it's hierarchy and putting it in place and saying, listen, if we can give you quote unquote freedom and you can be stoked about your freedom, but in the meantime, we're not going to take care of you or we're going to do our own thing. Um, brilliant move. Good, good move guys. I applaud you. And I would expect, um, I would expect that with my doctrine of original sin, with my doctrine mm-hmm. of fallenness, you don't become pure as the driven snow because you've taken office or gotten together yeah. with a bunch of, you know, other white guys. Yeah. It, it's, um, it's, uh, I remember somebody telling me that, uh, watching my journey, you know, uh, uh, uh to where I am now. And this, I, I covered a lot of this theologically with Manfred, but, uh, seeing the, like, I remember when somebody said like, you know, the idea of race was constructed. I'm like, well, what do you mean? We, we have physical differences. Like, what do you mean? I was like, it's like, do you know that like, or uh, somebody had to explain this to me. And this shows my privilege that these things needed to be explained to me. It's like the idea of white people was, has grown significantly, even in like our parents' lifetimes, the idea of like Jews, Italians, and Irish or the Mediterraneans, like yeah. in general, they're like, oh yeah, those are white people. Like that's just a given these days. But like the idea that like uh, Greek people were white uh, and of the exalted uh, race was yeah. unheard of. Irish, yeah, Irish need not apply. I mean, it, there was oh yeah, yeah. There, was, there was no white solidarity, right? That's the, absolutely yeah, even, and that's even in the language, right? It's white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, right? Yeah, that was the language because you needed all of those things because white wasn't really a thing, wasn't a you know all defining feature. Well, like when you look at history as a uh, clash of civilizations, uh, specifically uh, in the conservative view of like races, yeah. you know, y- y- what do they think of like War of the Roses and the, the the European wars, the white European wars, just like where France and England just fucked with each other for hundreds of years. It's just they only know about the um, what was it? The um, Martel. Uh, and his uh, victories, they don't uh, battling back the Muslim invasion of Europe. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that really had to change for me to kind of break things down was the fetish of the Western world as somehow oh, yeah. better than, right? 
I had to it, undo that entirely. Like I had to just forklift that out I, of my there brain. There's some ways in which that was the most damaging thing that I, I picked up and then even was a, a, a party to um, was this idea of not only Western exceptionalism, but American exceptionalism. And uh, let me just mm-hmm. speak to anyone in the, the Christian tradition here. If you're talking like that, stop it. That's idolatry. Okay. You don't, you don't say, oh, oh yeah. ours is better. Who the fuck says that? Right? I mean, that's a weird thing. Oh, I know everything's bad, but we're the best. Oh, I know. But, you know, obviously it's whoever brought us here is the best. It's, it's like a seven-year-old and their favorite football team, right? It's, it's, it's about that sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And, oh. How or liking the Rams. <laughs> that, is, that is a rational, had to get that. Uh, very rational thing. <laughs> yeah, the Rams and the Clippers and the Angels have not been uh, blessed with the good teams. I'm just following <laughs> the facts, okay? But, it's, but yeah, this, this idea <laughs> that – but even in sports, right? I might tell you, oh, the Rams are the best. But I, I know they're, they're not because we have a whole competition for this and the Chiefs are the best and the year before the Patriots are the best. It's just how it works. The, the I, Yeah. Yeah. That's all in good fun. You can't translate that to a worldview in which ideas are the battlefield or the weapons you use on the battlefield to, you know, quash yeah, the this, Mongol and, and, horde. You know, going back to Ben like Shapiro, that. That, I mean, he loves that the Western world made everything. The Western world, who's the oh, uh, Victor yeah. Davis Hanson, who says, you know, Asians are sort of inherently oh, yeah, that uh, asshole. sneaky. And I, I remember in 2007 when, um, Obama was running, and his pastor, Jeremiah Wright, said, God damn America, in a sermon. And it became like mm-hmm. the story. Back then, kids, if you're listening, back then, news stories were like a month long. You kept talking about it. It wasn't like today, where every day yeah. was a new story. And I, I mean, people were apoplectic about a guy saying, God damn America. And I understand that people would get apoplectic. But I don't understand. I, I can't. I remember, and I thought this at the time. Of course, you can say that. God can. He's talking about bad behavior. And would it be that God would yeah. damn bad behavior? <laughs> um, but somehow you're not allowed to say that. Like America is exempt from being looked at and damned and said, oh, no, it's not the best. It's, I, I'll, I'll admit, in some way, even thinking back that way is so foreign to me. Because the the amount of, I don't know, just uh, my country's the best, I I guess, if you're a barbarian just hoping to survive. But I'd like to think as a a man who, you know, uh, is a Christian and and thinks, hey, (laughs) um, we should love our neighbor. You you can't love your neighbor if you're saying, I'm the best, but I'm the best. It's uh, Well, there's also a a, a part of, uh, and uh, I think this probably comes from an academic tradition as we both i mean you are an honest to god academic i played one back in college you went, you um, went through grad school but, That's, uh, that counts <laughs> that was a very long time ago um <laughs> but the the it doesn't it's just a, a de facto thing that you go ahead and say without any examination like the idea that you would say anything so general without a second's hesitation rubs me just such the wrong way. The idea that's like, yeah, America's number one. I was like, well, let's examine that. <laughs> like, you know, I, 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 I will always contend that if you ever inch left of center, politically speaking, either on the global or American scale, you have uh, contrarian elements within you. Uh, I know you, you have contrarian elements in yourself. I do as well. Um, you've grilled me in your classes before using your contrarian elements. So it's that contrarian element that allows you to, to examine institutions that you've been brought up in and maybe not, (laughs) obviously it took us time, but you know, at a certain point you're just like, why is it this way? You know, at a certain point you just kind of got to reactivate that child. Like why, why, why just keep asking. And at a certain point you get down to some like very rudimentary things where you're just like, why is it this way? Does it? And, and then you get to the, does it have to be? Yeah. And the, the the thing, you know, I use history to say, why are things this way? I use um, polling and data and uh, other far smarter people than me to say, no, it doesn't have to be this way anymore. 
You know, for the longest time, I considered myself a libertarian or, uh, uh, and I had those conservative impulses because I'm like, well, this is the best we can do. You know, uh, racism is about as good as we're going to get. Uh, capitalism is the best system by far. Nothing's perfect. You know, it was kind of, I trusted other people to say, who told me, they're like, look, we tried other things. It didn't work. History ended. Remember? <laughs> so, you know, uh, it, it it's not worth examining anymore. People far smarter than you have tried. They failed. This is where we're at. I was like, all right. Yeah, I guess if history ended, then we're going to go ahead yeah, and have to call it a day. It gets, and, uh, you know, we're on top right now. So let's – it's quitting when the game, you know, is still in, in progress. <laughs> it's saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the lead. Okay, we're done. <laughs> let's, let's just cement this thing and, and yeah. remember me as the champion um, up to this point. You know, what you were saying before, I, I remember um, – one of the big, one of the really, really big turning points in, in my life actually took place when I was at the old college. And there is, um, a sister school of the old college in Alabama, in deep South Alabama. Mm. Um, and I was invited, a former student of mine, uh, actually went to the sister school as a professor and invited me to bring a bunch of students down to Alabama to be present at the uh, 50th anniversary of the march uh, from Selma, right, on the, the Pettus Bridge. Hmm. And so you could imagine the kind of scoffs that happened at the old college, like, why would you go there? <laughs> like, and um, actually, uh, the anthropologist you mentioned before, he was one of the people that came with me. Mm-hmm. And we took a whole bunch of kids from the old college, which is very, very upper middle class, to a sister school in Alabama, which was very, very lower class. Um, and mm-hmm. it was uh, an HBCU, and we stayed in their dorms with them. We got up in the morning and uh, waited in line and stood about 100 yards from the Obamas and the Bushes as they gave their speech. And then the next day, we went to a church service where we heard uh, Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson. And I remember heading back with students and talking about the experience and we were all shattered. We were all, just the world changed for us because we saw stuff we did not expect. So alien. And when you're told that Al Sharpton is a clown and you're just showing, you know, if you show the worst clips of anybody, you can look like a clown. But here is this guy preaching this sermon and it was, you know, it, it, it was it was beautiful. And you had to think, oh, those guys love Jesus. <laughs> like Those guys get the mission of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that was a couple of years before I left the college. But I, I really can, can think back that it was that point where th- a lot of things started to change. The, the point you made earlier that was really good, that it's fine to be a libertarian if you're upper middle class and white. Uh, it's, it's very different. It, or, or to say, let's not be so political. That's a very upper middle class and white thing to say, right? Because when we talk about politics, unless we're talking about, you know, county zoning for the, you know, the parks or something, we're talking about issues of life and death. We're talking about, you you know, the difference between poverty and health. Who lives, who dies, who gets health care, who gets medicine, who can afford a house. Out of this. You don't hear that. We Mm -hmm. didn't hear that in Selma, Alabama. They didn't say keep politics out of this. They said, it's a broken system, but let's see what we can do to love our neighbors. Um, I bet they would love to say, let's keep politics out of it, because politics have been the bane of many of their – they've suffered the hand of politics most of their lives. You know, politics, what lifted us up has held them down. And, you know, we – it – I remember somebody explaining privilege to me. It's just like, you know, privilege is something that's yeah. invisible to anyone. No, absolutely. I think of Zizek and the, um, uh, his ideas about ideology, right? That, that the fact that makes it so dangerous is that you don't see you have it. You don't know that everything you do is colored. Um, have you seen uh, Pervert's Guide to Ideology? No, I haven't. Okay. Do you know Zizek? Yeah. So he's, he's brilliant, and he's, uh, there's a great interview – or not interview, a great debate between Zizek and Jordan Peterson. Oh, God. I that remember is, that. Yeah. You know, Zizek is such a goofball, and, and Peterson yeah. is such a uh, – I'll just say a fucking fascist. 
that uh, yes, it, he is absolutely. So Zizek has a so Zizek has a movie. You have to see it. It's called A Pervert's Guide to Ideology, and it's him mm-hmm. basically explaining the danger of ideology through movies. And it's really funny, and it's filled with movie clips. And at the end of the movie, he kind of makes his final point. And this isn't spoiling it for anybody, but he makes his final point saying, what if something came to the Western American system like a, like a plague, like a virus? Do you think something even that big would cause Americans to rethink their ideology and to maybe change their political system for the better? And the conclusion is, no, they wouldn't. And so watching that now, it, it resonates so much, but, but it does a lot to kind of help you think through the things that you don't realize you're always thinking about uh, with, with ideology. So that's, that's my, uh, that's my recommendation. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm uh, slightly familiar with Zizek and uh, the, the ideology that uh, he, he's always talking about the idea that, you know, uh, everything we do is colored by it and it's kind of, it, it, it affects what you perceive and what you do. It is um, it, it, like you said, your core principles, your core values. It is how you, the lines on the sand you've drawn, you know, it, it, uh, and this is one of the most frustrating things about talking about politics is when you talk about the value of something with somebody who has so many unexamined, just ideologies that's just like okay you believe this because that's your ideology you believe this because you believe capitalism produces the best outcome but you've never examined that you have never thought about it one whit you've always just take it as assumed and yeah it's something that uh i as a leftist on the internet interact with a lot where it's just you know just you just see it's um media criticism 101 you just see somebody who's just like well you know um stock market's up so uh that means the economy's good it's like well um oh don't, yeah that's an interesting that, that, listen the conversation yeah. about what capitalism is or is supposed to be oh. or has been since reagan it, it, it's it's such a complicated thing that to simply um yeah to simply say well this ism works you know or or i love the thing oh you know, like I said, I, I don't have an ism. I don't have a party. Uh, but probably the closest thing that I I would dig would be democratic socialism, right? I think that's the mm-hmm. closest to you know. Let's let's work with some of those assumptions that I think kind of jibe with my understanding of, of the world. Mm-hmm. But these systems are so complex and so. Broken. And what I was going to say. So when I say, oh, I you think democratic socialism? The big. What about Stalin? Oh, what about now? <laughs> What about the classic democratic yeah, socialist yeah, Mao? Yes. And this idea that people think, well, it's so obvious that those systems are bad because of Stalin and Mao. Because of all the people they killed. Because of all the people they killed. Like, did, did you, do you know about like the American military? You know, you know about these two, two bombs yeah. we dropped? We were the only people to ever do yeah. it. I mean, if you're going to judge a system by its fruits, capitalism is is worse or as bad i should say drenched in blood and misery and so to and that's why i say don't don't hold to an ism you know i'm in the (laughs) ballpark of these things (laughs) i'm in the ballpark of lutheran i'm in the ballpark of democratic socialist um but it really is we just we have to dig out all of our assumptions we have to think through what are all the presuppositions that we make based on invisible things like where we're from and, and who's been teaching mm-hmm. us. I, I follow a lot of the same where I, I don't subscribe to any party or ism, uh, uh, school of thought. Um, I consider myself a generic leftist mm-hmm. and I'm still reading and I'm, you know, a baby's first Marxist yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. But I, I have, I don't have a destination. I have a direction. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to make things more equal. That is my end game. Because the system is broken. We all know it. Yeah. We all feel it in our bones. It, but the, the thing that I can't, that keeps me up at night is the fact that so many more people suffer that don't have to. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that was always the thing that I 
was told is just like, well, you know, we could feed the hungry, but there's just not enough money or food. We throw away a third of our nation's food. We have tons of money. We could send everybody to Harvard if we wanted to. Like it's, and Harvard doesn't need to cost that much. The money is fake. <laughs> that like, that is like, like with race, that was one of those things that like, you know, we print money. Like we just agree that this is how much things cost. It could arbitrarily change the yeah, next that's day. What, like, that's what oh, the shit, right. is like, uh, you know, having these booms where we've got 32 million unemployed people. Um, you know, what is it like 80 some percent of the people that are going to be hurt the most are making under 40,000. Um, Oh yeah. The system is broken. But if you just looked at the stock market, yeah. if you just looked at some of these things that we kind of invent and the whole idea of the stock market, I was talking to a friend of mine who that's his work. The stock market is built so that it reflects well to build confidence so that it, people buy back into it, right? It's, it's a snake eating its own tail. And it's designed to, to look a certain way to give people confidence. It, it doesn't, going back to where we started, it doesn't necessarily correspond to reality. It might be a beautiful little coherent system with traders and dividends and whatever. Eternal growth. <laughs> Eternal growth. With but, the occasional that's just a, that's a That's coherent, right? That's, that's just a system. It doesn't have necessarily any root in, in reality. Uh, Richard, I have got to get going here. I'm going to... I think uh, I do too as well. Work is calling. My kids' questions. But uh, very good talking to you. And uh, Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much for joining. If someone wants to know more about what I do, I'm not going to pitch myself. I'm not going to plug myself here because that would be, you know, of course, uh, contrary to the Professor X. But if someone knows you and they want to contact you and you contact me, then that's I'll filter them. Don't worry. (laughs) All right, Richard. Professor X, thank you so much for joining us on Hold No Heroes. And uh, I'll see you all next time, heroes. Bye. Bye.